0: Good morning, Hope Church. Good to see every single one of you, those new and those uh, those regulars. My name's Tom. I'm a pastor here, along with uh, with Vic, and it's a pleasure to open up Mark chapter three with you today as we continue going through this amazing epistle. I just want to say that uh, <clears throat> uh, if uh, if you're here, uh, you are in the right place, and it's just a, it's a blessing to be together with everybody. I could ask tonight uh, this this morning how you all feel, uh, or you know how, how your week was, but none of that is really relevant. What I really want to ask you is, isn't it amazing that regardless of how we feel, regardless of how our week has been or what awaits you tomorrow morning to wake up to, we are here together, joined as the people of God, and God is in our midst, ready to speak to us, empower us, encourage us, and lead us on to greater, more humble, more holy, more Christ-like living, and we are convinced that that occurs through his word. So we open up to Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to read this, and i Small introduction. I'll read it, and then we'll uh, we'll start uh, breaking it apart by God's grace. But so far, and of course, there's some visitors. So a bit of a recap for Mark. The, this gospel is a fast-paced gospel, so that's my excuse for speaking quickly. Uh, and and it, it uh, one of the most frequent words in this book is immediately. Immediately, it's an action-packed comic book version gospel. And and what we've seen is that Jesus has arrived and started proclaiming that his kingdom is coming. It's like a train that that the, the sort of the first carriage arrives, but it's not fully arrived yet. There's still some screeching and some crashing as it comes into place. So the king is here and he's proclaiming that the kingdom is coming and it is arriving, and in its coming, there will be some shaking. So he has already had opposition from the religious leaders who are currently, in the point of this gospel that we're reading this morning, they are currently planning his assassination. Political enemies have joined forces against Jesus to get rid of him. And yet we also saw last week grand throngs are following him by the thousands so that he has to make uh, contingency plans that in case they kill him by stamp by, by trampling on him, he needs a boat to stand on the water to get away from them. And, uh, and so last week we, we saw how he picked for himself 12 apostles. What we were seeing is that despite all of the opposition, despite all of the people coming against Jesus, uh, uh, refusing his reign, uh, uh, refusing that he would be their fulfilling priest, their final prophet and their their fulfilled king. No, they don't want that. And Jesus casts them to the side. We read that the builders in in this imagery, the the builders throw aside that rock, which is Christ. They don't want to build with that rock. Well, where that rock lands is where Christ builds his kingdom. That rock that the builders have rejected, God has made the cornerstone. We are built upon him as fellow rejects. So his his kingdom continues regardless of opposition. And this morning we see it continue that he teaches on opposition to him and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're going to read from verse 21 in chapter 3. That's where we went up to last week and then onwards to verse 35. Hear now the word of the living God. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called, to, and, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But he is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called to him. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my brothers? Who are are my mother? And looking about at those sitting around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless the reading and explaining of his precious, infallible, inerrant word this morning. We have to see the the setting here that really the bulk of what we're going to look at is those things coming out of Jesus' own mouth about how he is speaking of uh, the forgiveness of sins, the blasphemy against the Spirit and the like. But we need to see the setting as it is uh, shown to us by Mark in the scribes coming down from Jerusalem and saying what they say. So we've already seen that his family... Maybe you miss this in your gospel accounts, and maybe maybe, maybe you think that an entire uh, denomination, uh, namely the Catholic Church, misses this in their theology, that, that Jesus' own family were, were, were afraid of what was happening socially. He has thousands following him. They hear what he's saying. They, they see what is happening, and they conclude he is out of his mind. Have, have you ever been there where your family member is embarrassing the family? You see them on the news dressed improperly running about, drunkard, something like that, and here it is, bringing shame on the family name. That's what they think of Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and his friends. So they come down, and they're thinking this way. They've got to get him. They've got to bring him home, admit him into the uh, rehab clinic, do something. And, and at the same time, scribes come down from Jerusalem, so teach, uh, people who, who wrote down and, and propagated the teaching of the Pharisees. Now, another uh, gospel account, Matthew tells us that what they are about to say is in response to a miraculous demon uh, expulsion and healing. A man who was mute, couldn't speak, and deaf, couldn't hear, was healed in a moment. And it was in response to this that the people, the huge crowds, were saying, just in fulfillment of the LBC we've heard this morning, is this the son of David? Surely this is the king, the Messiah. The prophecies are coming true. The king has come. The kingdom is being established. And in response to that, the scribes said, no, no. He is in league with Satan. Beelzebul is the word that we read here. They say, they claim he is possessed by Beelzebul. He has Satan within him. The other way of saying this is the prince of the demons, he cast out the demons. This was a first century way of referring, it it historically sort of come from uh, Baal, one of the pagan gods, and and it also sort of meant, if you slightly pronounce it differently, um, Lord of the Dunghill, which is a tremendous insult, uh, or or Lord of the, the Demons. And so they're calling Jesus this. They're saying he is uh, in league with, with Baal, Satan, Lord of the demons. That's how he's doing this miraculous act. You'll notice they can't deny the act. They don't deny the healing. They can't. The guy's hearing the conversation who previously had no working ears. He, he's right here. They cannot deny it. They have to re-explain the, the occurrence. In fact, what we see here is that it is not a matter of information or evidence that is before the Pharisees, these scribes, it's a matter of the heart. You, you can throw, uh, no matter how much you try, all the evidence in the world before an unbelieving heart. And unless the Holy Spirit comes in and turns that heart into a heart of flesh, turns that unbelieving heart into a heart of faith, that evidence will fall on dead ground and produce nothing. And that is what is happening. Jesus is showing them clearly his Davidic, Messianic, prophetic, priestly role. And they deny it. They say, and so what we see here is that the motivation is not scientific. They're not saying this is unlikely. We would like some more evidence. Can you show us you're working at? Is this a peer-reviewed miracle, Jesus? They're not saying that. Their response is in the heart to what people are saying they realize their power is being stripped from them. They realize that the people are looking to him as the Messiah and King and powerful authority, and in response to that, ethically, morally, it's not evidence and mental, it's heart and ethical. And they respond in unbelief, saying he has, and and then in an attempt to convince the rest of the people in their rejection, they say he is possessed by Satan, and it's Satan's power that's throwing out all of the demons. That's what's Happening here, which is as illogical as it is blasphemous. Of course, you hear that and say that's extremely blasphemous. And Jesus is going to get to that, but he starts with how dumb it is. yes, it's it's blasphemous. we'll we'll touch on that, but did you just hear yourselves? And so it says that he speaks to them in parables, he sort of hears what the crowd's saying. maybe he he saw their hearts as he's done before, he sort of calls them together and go, "I just want to hear this out of your own mouths because it sounds ridiculous. You're saying, that Satan, in, in his power and his attempt to overthrow the kingdom of God, sends out all his demons and then starts shooting them down himself and pulling them back, and that's good war tactics? You you think that that a commander or a general would, would send out the infantry and then just as they're sort of taking the bunkers and making ground, then he's gonna drop airstrikes on his guys from above, and then and then those planes are gonna be shot out of the sky by the Navy? And then he's going to walk around and say to the president, see my firepower? See how good that was? Great show, right? Jesus knows that that they know that that's idiotic wartime tactics. He also just calls on the the natural human experience of the household and goes, you ever been in a divided, abrasive household? Is that making much progress? Is that enabling to, to build an inheritance for the children? No, that's a household that's against itself. It won't stand. Unity is required for success, and let me tell you, Satan's mind is set on success. He may be evil, he is not stupid. That's what Jesus says to these guys. He says, That's, that just sounds ridiculous. I'm glad I can hear it from yourself. No prince of war would truly do this, since he seeks to stand. Look at verse 25. It says, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. He's used that word twice now, standing. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, you might hear this and say, okay, it sounds like Jesus accidentally is making an apologetic for the eternal omnipotence of the kingdom of Satan. Is it? Is that what it kind of sounds like? On first reading, it sort of comes across that way. Jesus is saying, if Satan's against himself, then he will fall. And that can't happen. Well, he's the king of a brand new kingdom. Jesus' point is, Satan is not the bringer of his own downfall. You're looking at him. I will be the one to bring down that strong man's house. I will be the one to set up my kingdom. And it's not because my enemy is some weak fool. It is because I am an omnipotent king able to deliver my people. So he says in verse 26 there, and into 27, but is coming to an end. But, here's why the strong man falls. But, no one can enter a strong man's house, that strong man is Satan, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying very clearly, referring back to that miracle, remember? He's talking about that miracle, which was the the unbinding, if you would, of somebody in, in Satan's household afflicted by demons and sickness. And Jesus is referring to that as they were and referring to their claims that he's from and in league with Satan. And he's saying that house will be blown apart, not because of the strong man's folly, but because of a greater strong man on the scene. So in the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh, that was Jesus bashing down the front door. In Jesus' trial and struggle in the desert, overcoming the temptations of Satan, that was him beating down Satan and and putting a gag around his mouth. And and as Jesus goes throughout Judea and and the areas and starts doing miracle by miracle by miracle and casting out demons back to their starting place, getting them away from his People. That is the the tying and the and the binding of the limbs of Satan. When Jesus goes to the cross, he will be burning the deed to the land of the house that Satan is in and ruling over. In his resurrection, he will blow out the back wall of Satan's kingdom. And in his ascension, he will lead all of those captives free. And in his sitting on the throne, he will be there ruling over a new kingdom of people formerly captive to Satan. That's the operation that Jesus is on, of rescue of sinners from death, hell, and the power of the demonic realm under Satan. Jesus is here. That's why Satan's going down. Jesus is here. That's why demons are being cast out. Mark it. They were seeing the same things, coming to their own conclusions because of the evil in their hearts. So, of course, the scribes could not be more wrong. How, how different is that picture? Jesus coming, destroying, and then te- plundering the strong man's house to the strong man has hired Jesus to come in and start graffitiing his own th- like some kind of covert operation. No. no Satan is currently bound, squirming, groaning. He, he has some power, but it is now limited under the reign of Christ. And Jesus through his ministers is marching through the world year by year and nation by nation taking more and more of his elect people to himself through the preached gospel and so we sit here today each of us with our faith in Christ we've entered his kingdom left behind that realm of sin and satan and you are freed by all that which you could never have been freed under the law under false religion and your own attempts so here we are Jesus the king, the stronger man, and what does he say? He has this opportunity before the whole crowd. Look at verse 28. As they're all wondering, they're hearing the rumors, they're hearing the smear campaign against this new king, that he's actually in league with Satan, that he has an unclean spirit, verse 30 says. Jesus says this. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let's not rush past this to to get to the theological question and maybe the real burning question on you have I committed or what is it to commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? But before we rush there, don't miss what Jesus just said. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Does, does Jesus even know what he's saying? Do we even know what Jesus is saying? When he says that all sins Well, What is sin? Sin is, as our confession will tell us, the, the lack of conformity to God's law or the breaking of God's law. That is every rebellious thought, act, Word that we've ever said, done, that that is anything less than in perfect conformity to God's commandments. It is rebellion against God. It is hatred of our Father. It is rejection of our Creator. It is the denial of His wisdom for the fulfillment of our own. It is the treasuring of pleasures above Jesus. All of those things, true of sin, infinite in their debt and seriousness and Jesus says they can be forgiven which means your sin Christian all sin your sin of of drawing back from the Lord and not leaning into his grace and his mercy in the gospel you're seeking your own way and in direction for your life and your family or or your own your own way of lording over your income the the way that you have neglected maybe a great gift given to you by the spirit to serve the church uh, a way that you that you that you are not uh, meaningfully engaged to those who need it you do not serve you are not Christ like you you tolerate secret pleasures those sins can be forgiven you no let me say if you're a christian they have been forgiven of you and whatever blasphemy you have committed can be forgiven Maybe you're non-Christian or, or you fear where you are. Maybe you were raised in a Christian family and, and, and you would ask this question, can my sin be forgiven? Paul, you know, maybe the, the question would be, can can we be forgiven if we've murdered Christians as a way of getting an income? Like, like that's Paul. The apostle will tell you, yes, even that murderous church persecuting sin can be forgiven. What about, what about rejection of even knowing Jesus? Like saying, I don't know who he is, and I reject any kind of idea that I do. If you've done that, Peter is your friend to say to you, yes, even that blasphemy, that sin can be forgiven you. Even there in the workplace, an opportunity to say something. Somebody asks you a question, and you you back off, you 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 pretend not to have an opinion on that. You you don't know what Christians believe, those wackos. Maybe you'd ask the question, can can the crucifixion of Jesus, beating, mocking, spitting, whipping, scourging, holding his hands down to drive a thick steel nail through his wrist, could that act be forgiven? We see that Jesus himself, hanging there, dying, bleeding, cries out to the Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Yes, every single sin that is committed can be forgiven. Great answer, The great question to which the answer comes is, how does that work? When the holy king is in front of us, when the holy God is the one we've confronted, sinned against, rebelled against, despised, that God before us, how can we be forgiven? Of course, we know. That the answer lies in that great doctrine called imputation. If you don't know it, you need to dig into. It. Go and search the meaning of that word. But I'll, I'll give you a cheat session today. Kind of my job. Imputation means maybe you're financial, maybe you're an accountant. I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. Uh, but maybe you're an accountant. You're, you're familiar with that word, and you know that it means reckoning. You know, one person's account is reckoned to another person. One person's debt is reckoned to another one person's finances reckoned to another it means counting as now, now now. Jesus lived a sinless perfect life yet by the imputation that the father uh, 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 did he was counted as living your exact life Jesus was Jesus was therefore treated as having committed every single sin we have committed He was counted as a sinner. He was treated as a sinner. And therefore, the full debt we had owed, the full amount of wrath we had stacked up and piled up waiting for us on the day of our death came tumbling down by the Father's appointment unto Him. It was Him that was cut off instead of us. It was Him that was destroyed in place of us. With our names on His account, He died so that we might also be reckoned with or counted as having the same righteousness that he achieved in his life. The same perfection that he lived is now counted to you before the Father. That the, 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 you were a sinner, you are now called righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what you've freely received from outside of you in Jesus Christ. Justification comes by Jesus alone. And that fullness of forgiveness, that freeness of forgiveness comes to those who alone have faith. No works of obedience, no achieving the law, no doing enough or being a right sort or type of person. Nothing. But if you look to that atonement of Christ, the cross of Jesus, And the resurrection where he triumphed over the grave and all of our sin and now sits in heaven, if you believe that that is true for sinners, then he is yours forever. And you are forgiven. So that what Jesus says here, that we can be tempted to just treat as a a preface to the, the big meaty doctrine, this becomes true for you. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of you if you believe on Jesus Christ. Every sin has been forgiven of you if you do believe on Jesus Christ and whatever blasphemies you have ever uttered. In preaching and echoing this very same thing, it's called out in Acts 13 as the gospel is exploding through the early church. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. Everything the law condemned you as having done, Jesus frees you as doing, as frees you from. Or Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, I'll i I'll read that from Isaiah himself. He says this, it is God speaking <coughs> through the mouth of his prophet. And he says the following, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is what Jesus proclaims. Every sin will be forgiven of the children of man and every blasphemy they utter. That is the heart of our hope. That is the soul of the Christian faith and the Christian religion. Free grace through faith alone. But Jesus does say, following, he does say, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What this reminds to us is sin's eternal punishment. All those sins forgiven in Christ will never again ever appear on your statement, will never appear on your record of disobedience before the Father. It has been pinned to the cross through the palms of Jesus, soaked in his blood, burned in the resurrection. It's gone. But every single sin that remains, it was not given to Christ, or let's say it more personally, every single individual who has not placed their faith on Jesus Christ remains with their full list of sins, their full list of, of condemning acts that they've done, that you've done, if that's you. that you remain under condemnation, in a state of guilt and awaiting wrathful death under the hand of the Father. Therefore you have you remain, in to use Jesus' words here, guilty of eternal sin and you do not have forgiveness. Every sin will be completely paid for. It will either be paid for by Jesus on the cross or it will be paid by your torment in hell forever. So it's important to remind ourselves that this occurs. This is a biblical doctrine and it's here in Jesus. Eternal punishment in hell. For all those who do not believe, there is an eternal and infinite hell. And one of the frequent questions we might ask, or maybe you asked at a prior time, but, you know, you're not supposed to ask that now because you're in the church, and you know. But but you have at the back of your mind maybe still, is it really fair? One sin in one life for a speck of dust, a spark, hardly a blip on the radar, then we're gone. God's going to hold me accountable, or those accountable, for some eternal, infinite time in hell that gets nothing but hotter and hotter? Maybe you think that and maybe you you, you choose to reject that doctrine or you at least struggle with it. And I think we might think there's a misunderstanding on God's part. He jimmied the books. That's way overdue. But rather, friends, that's a misunderstanding of God on our part. To correctly understand God is to remember and to know that he is an infinite being. He is an eternal being. His standard is an infinite standard. His law is an eternal law, which means that though you and I are finite, and our acts seem pretty illegitimate, insignificant, whenever they are committed, it is not so much who commits them or what we do, but who we are committing against that defines that sin. The same act of assault against a neighbor or a king, the same act by the same person, receives vastly different consequences. And so God's eternal and infinite law, he's eternal and infinite person, eternally and infinitely holy, righteous and just, being sinned against, even in the smallest regard to our human mindset, that is an eternal and infinite sin. It's been said because there is no finite God to sin against, there is no finite sins. There's only an infinite God. So there's only infinite sins making hell Not an overbearing punishment, but a never-ending and never-completed payment. Until eternity ends, which it never will, all sins will not be paid off in hell. Let me implore you to come to Christ. This is what we, we want you to escape. This is the safety that is available in Christ alone. That in him, because of his death, all of that can be escaped. And in fact, to think God would for a moment, as we should, God would much prefer you be justified in Christ than condemned in hell. He never is fully repaid by those in hell, and so it goes on forever. But your sins will rightly satis- be rightly satisfied, fulfilled, and justice will be, um, uh, will be satisfied in the death of Jesus. Come to him, rightly glorify God, and receive salvation that is on offer for you. But Jesus does go on. In in his specific context, so we know this, all unforgiven sin leaves you eternally guilty. That's true. But that doesn't mean that the sin of unbelief is the same as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right? We, we want to ask the question, what does it mean? This is an, an eternally relevant question. Infinitely significant. What does it mean? Jesus just said all of his forgiveness is out of reach for those who commit the unforgivable sin. We don't want to be there. What is it? And like I said, because all all sin that, that, that uh, that is done by those who do not have faith, we might think, well, simply not having faith is the unforgivable sin. But that is inaccurate. The case of the one unforgivable sin called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is... Let's just push again. Let's say what it's not first, because there's all sorts of, maybe you've heard this, maybe you've come from different backgrounds and you, okay, maybe, let me say, it's not, though all of these can be serious, it's not wearing a black belt with brown shoes, though it comes close. I hate seeing that. Match your leathers, gentlemen. It's not, this one's true, it's not speaking against some anointed Christian leader as if they're above criticism. If you've been there, you've been cast down with this proclamation that you're committing, you you haven't. You've not. You've probably just been discerning and asked something about the bank accounts. Moving on. It's not questioning the legitimacy of some spurious and very questionable miracles going on in some nearly heretical or heretical ministry online, on on TV, or around you. That's not committing the unforgivable sin of, of blaspheming the holy spirit where's your faith just jump down shake like the rest of them that's that's god's working it's not that it's not <clears throat> adultery it's not suicide it's not fornication it's not abortion and i've heard all of these coming from troubled and weary souls is this the one that i've committed let me say in jesus own words truly Jesus says, all of those, if they were truly sins, can be and will be forgiven of you. Because by faith you receive Christ's death and receive Christ's righteousness, which means blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot occur in the same heart that has faith in Jesus. Let me say this. If blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we haven't defined that yet, whatever it is, if that was committed and then somebody had faith, that sin would be forgiven. Jesus just said, all sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemy they commit. Which means, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot occur by someone or in someone who has faith in Jesus Christ. It has to, it is, those two things are mutually exclusive. Only the unsaved people can commit it, and no one who is a Christian can commit this sin. The question, of course, comes, can't I be a false professor? Can't I be a false Christian thinking I'm saved, but I'm not? So it's still liable to commit this. And, of course, that's true. We'll get there. Let's first work on defining what this sin is. Some people think, I have read some commentators, and they say, it just means not believing in Jesus, but we've looked at that. That's not sufficient. Others will say it was a sin that could only have occurred in Jesus' time on earth. Like, if he's not in front of you, and you're not calling him certain things, then you can't do this sin. That's also not true. We'll go to Hebrews and see why later. Others say it's exactly the sin, and precisely this sin and no other sin, that the scribes are committing here, which is saying that Jesus' miracles are empowered by Satan. If you say some miracles of Jesus or in his church are demonically inspired and they turn out not to be, you've committed that unforgivable sin. That is also not true and not sufficient when we deal with the evidence. Let me use a, a 3 uh, uh, uh argument, and then we'll really tighten down in defining it. Number one, if the sin was committed and that person had faith, they would be forgiven. We said that before. Jesus teaches that all sin will be forgiven except for this sin, Number three, this sin goes hand in hand with never having been forgiven, never being saved, and never being saved in the future. If we look at the example of the scribes here, in the other gospel accounts as well, what we realize is that these scribes have not committed it. Maybe, maybe you read that differently. You think Jesus is telling them they have? They haven't yet. Yet. They have come about as close as you possibly can. And Jesus is saying, go no further. You just about cannot think up a worse or more deviant and insulting blasphemy against the Son of God who came to destroy the works of the devil than by saying, I'm in league with him. But that can be forgiven. Go no further, he's saying. The scribes have not, but are very close to committing it. The scribes have seen the undeniable. What he's warning them against is something that they are about to commit. So let's look at the scribes. They they have seen something undeniable, namely that miracle. They tasted of the miraculous work of God. The scribes have tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've heard his teaching. They know it's amazing. The scribes have been witness to the powers of the kingdom age to come. They're seeing it. But their hearts hated it and produced an illogical excuse that they do not actually believe. Don't think they've actually concluded that Jesus is in league with Satan. Nicodemus sort of blows the lid off this. When Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus by night in the dark, no watching, no cameras, and he says to him, we all know you're from God. No one does this stuff if he's not. So we know that. Every Pharisee that argues with you, he knows. We've all signed off on it. We agree. We're just really scared. So, these people are outwardly confessing something that is a convenient excuse to get people off their back. Why don't you believe in Jesus? Why don't you turn, repent, come to Him? Why don't you follow? No, no, no. Here's my outward excuse, though their heart knows the truth. And I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 6, <coughs> verse 4. We go here because I believe the writer of Hebrews speaks to and warns against this very same sin. Chapter 6 in Hebrews and verse 4. He says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, this is a sin that can be committed in the later years of Hebrews and, of course, still today. What I think we must conclude is that this sin is one committed while, of course, those who do not hear will go to hell. That's true. Those who don't hear the gospel don't believe. But this is about people who hear, who taste, who see, who have borne witness to, who acknowledge the truth. This is about those with knowledge of Jesus, the word of God, and the gospel, higher and above the average person, which means, if I can bring it as applicable as I can today, it's one committed by those who look like Christians. It's especially... Risky for those who have, been, with all of the additional graces and blessings you have, it is especially at risk for those who have grown up in a Christian home, who've who've learned and understood, or or, or even for those uh, theologians who still have secret unrepentant sin. You you have to hear this as a warning to you. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when there has been an exposure to truth, understanding of the Word, a seeing and experiencing of the power of God, but. They hold on to their sin and refuse to heed the calls to repent Sunday after Sunday. And morning by morning, as they talk with their family or their friends, they refuse to repent and they harden their hearts, as we read in Psalm 95 for our call to worship. They have an outward excuse which is some kind of profession, and it becomes whatever is able to be excusable for them. Some people say, no, I'm an atheist now. I read up all the you know, uh, uh, contradictions in the Bible online on that one article. I heard a quote from Richard Dawkins. I'm done. I'll, it sounds reasonable enough. I'll say this. Most Christians will be scared away from asking too many questions. I'm an atheist. For other people, they stay in the church circles, but they leave where they are, where they're being pressed by the Spirit and the Word of God, and maybe flee somewhere else where they can get away with more. Maybe others will, will flee to an entirely different religion or, like Judas, to death itself through suicide. Whatever it is, people know the truth, refuse to repent to the glory of Jesus. They refuse to turn to that. They harden their hearts and then outwardly utter a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, whatever it may be. Some kind of excuse to not believe, though they know it to be true. That is what Hebrews 6 tells us of. That is what Jesus here warns us of. That person, that person in a state of unbelief, surrounded by the graces of God. Let me ask you, who is the one person who can give them a heart of faith? Who is the one being who can grant to them regeneracy, repentance, belief, treasuring Jesus? It's the Holy Spirit. And therefore to Finally and totally reject that and turn away is why Jesus says it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You you oppose the work of Jesus all you want, the Holy Spirit will get you. He'll bring you to him. But you reject and finally oppose the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no final forgiveness for them. So let me ask, can a Christian commit this sin? Maybe you're wondering, have I committed this sin? Two questions only matter. Number one, do you look to Christ as the Lord and Savior of all who believe, and do you trust his death and resurrection? If yes, then question two, are you concerned, above all else, are you concerned with the loss of your soul's eternal safety? Are you afraid of the idea of eternal death? I'm not talking about outward tears and a show of feeling bad and 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 you know uh, fake repentance before other people and confessing to lots of people so they all know you're not that kind of guy. I mean, truly, are you concerned in your heart of hearts with the loss of your soul and the danger of hell? If those two things are true for you, yes, I I believe that Christ is savior of all those who believe, and and I do fear the 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 the, the concept of hell and my soul being thrust there. Then you have not committed the sin that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I say that with confidence. Because as you see in the example of the scribes and, and those who walk away, and, and I've sat across tables with people saying this very thing, there is no fear of God in their eyes. There is excuse. There might even be fake tears. But truly, there is, a, there is an arrogance that would lie to God, that would spit in his face all over again, which is why the writer of the Hebrews says, They are re-crucifying Christ. They're unsaved, they're sealed, they are gone. So I say to you, in the spirit of Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 and Mark 3, if you hear the Holy Spirit's voice today, any day, compelling you to repent, do not harden your hearts. There is no pleasure on the other side of sin. It is only to be found in Christ, in Him alone is security. And I think that Mark's order of this story and the way he sandwiches what he just said about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he he bookended that beginning and end with a story of those closest to Jesus who heard the prophecies, Mary, who saw the angel, and her and her children at the beginning and at the end of this passage are saying that Jesus is out of his mind, get him home, lock him down. And you might think that to this we must conclude that they had committed this, this sin of the, against the Holy Spirit, but it's not true. Look at what it says. It, of course, this is this grand insult that his mother and brothers came so condescendingly, thinking they're still ultimately his brother. They're not. They're secondarily his brother. They are primarily his, their Lord. He is primarily their Lord, and they come and say, pass along the line, get to Jesus, tell him we're here. His family's here. Jesus looks around in verse 33. He says, who are my mothers and my brothers? He looked around at the room around him and he said, here they are. Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see how, how tightly faith unites you to Jesus Christ? How closely he considers you if you have believed. You are not a a name on some long list of constituents of some elected man in office. You are a child of Jesus, a brother, a sister. Your name is written on his palm that that the nail went through. He's on his throne with you in mind. This is why all sin is forgiven. This is why nothing will befall you that will take you away from him. This is why, Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Because faith, no matter how strong it is, no matter how pure and devoted and welled up it is, if you just believe in Jesus Christ at all, then you are his child. You're his responsibility. You're his family. Earthly family leaves. Earthly family blasphemes you and insults you and misunderstands you. Jesus sticks closer than a brother. He owns you. He purchased you. He loves you. And even to those who have come so close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They might they might say this about Jesus, a lunatic, or or maybe he was demon possessed. Maybe you've been there even to you. If you do the will of God, you will be considered his child. What does it mean do the will of God? It's not a list of obedient acts that you must do. What is the will of God? You believe on his Messiah whom he sent. That is the will of God for you to do, which is no doing. That's the act you have to do, which is no action. Believe on Jesus. You will be saved. All your sins will be forgiven you, and you can rejoice in the family of God, in the kingdom of Jesus, that he is your savior. Can you bow with me as I pray over us for this word? Father God, we come to you with hearts that, whether we like it or not, that are pressed and squeezed and torn open by your word. We come to you as those who your spirit finds out, and your spirit convicts of sin, and your spirit brings us to your presence. Your spirit reminds us of the word of God. Your spirit lets us taste of the power of the age to come. Lord, we pray that as the spirit's voice is heard through the scripture, through what we hear Jesus as having said, would you let nobody respond in hardness and callousness and turning away? Would you please, God, make us tender people, for your hard word comes down on us and makes us tender people. We pray, Lord, that you would bring repentance in the lives of Christians who are sliding backwards, who are allowing themselves to drift because their eyes are on the world. Kill those pleasures. Give them a a proper taste of Jesus and his righteousness and the eternal life that is at his right hand, which we have begun to drunk in. And for those, Lord, who do not believe, who reject you with whatever excuse they come up with, they know your truth is true. They know the Lord is the Lord. They know you, Jesus. And I pray that you would give to us children that grow up and know you and love you. I pray that you would give us Teenagers responding, and if that's us this morning, you would let us respond to your gospel in faith. Would you save many? Because Jesus is worthy. He's building a new family. He's building a new kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that we can partake in that by grace alone. And everybody said, amen.